Oh God, at what price did the Reformers sing those words? Whatever the price, may we of the new Reformation be willing to sacrifice our all for Christ, who is our Savior, who is our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. It was a cold and gray December morning, December 10, 1520. Philip Melanchthon, the younger associate of Professor and Pastor Martin Luther, issued an invitation on Luther's, be Luther's behalf to all the faculty and students of the fledgling, the new University of Wittenberg. At 10 o'clock this morning, you are invited to join Dr. Luther at the Elster Gate of Wittenberg where he will preside over the public burning of the papal bull Exerge Domine. The bull has already gone viral in this sleepy little German town. It's gone viral in the entire nation. The bold challenge three years ago unwittingly issued that took on the church and the bishop of Rome like a viral fire. Luther's challenge threatens the church of the Dark Ages. And so the Pope responds. Pope Leo X mints no words in this 41-point condemnation of Martin Luther's writings. In the papal bull, these are his words, by the way. Arise, O Lord. Now, in papal uh, proclamations and encyclicals, the first two words in Latin become the title for that proclamation, exerge domine, arise, O Lord, the Pope wrote. And judge, arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar, and that would be Luther, has invaded thy vineyard. Arise, O Peter, and consider the case of the Holy Roman Church, the mother of all churches, consecrated by thy blood. Our pastoral office can no longer tolerate the pestiferous virus of the following 41 errors, and then they are all listed. We can no longer suffer, the Pope goes on, the serpent, that would be Luther, to creep through the field of the Lord. The books of Martin Luther which contain these errors are to be examined and burned. And as for Martin himself, good God. What office of paternal love have we omitted in order to recall him from his heirs? Luther's books have already been burned in the German city of Mainz. Now in an act of defiance, Luther assembles a university community by an old oak tree outside of the, outside of the gate. A pile of wood is already stacked and one of the oldest members of the faculty picks up the torch, thrusts it into the pyre and as the flames roar heavenward, Luther tosses the papal bull into the fire with these words, as thou hast vexed, hast vexed the Holy One of the Lord, may the eternal fire vex thee. And the students, oh, students being students, particularly these are seminarians and you know what seminarians are like. They have come for the fire as well. They've emptied the library. No kidding. They've emptied the library of expensive volumes of papal constitutions, canon law, and the words of scholastic theology. So there, so there, so there. Later, Luther, in explaining his action, wrote these words on the screen. Since they burned my books, I burn theirs. The canon law was included because it makes the pope a god on earth. 
So far, I have merely fooled with this business of the Pope. All my articles condemned by Antichrist are Christian. Seldom has the Pope overcome anyone with Scripture and with reason, end quote. Martin Luther's written and published response is titled, Against the Execrable, that would be Abominable, Bull of Antichrist. Luther minces no words himself. His words are on the screen. Peter said that you should give a reason for the faith that is in you, but this bull condemns me from its own word without any proof from Scripture, whereas I back up all my assertions from the Bible. I ask thee, ignorant Antichrist, does thou think that with thy naked words thou canst prevail against the armor of Scripture? Oh, meticulous ignorance, you impious and insensate, and that means comatose, you impious and insensate papist, as they excommunicated me, so I excommunicate them in the name of the sacred truth of God. Christ will judge whose excommunication will stand. Amen. He loves that word, and he'll come back to it next week. And with that, Luther's rupture with Rome was complete and irreparable. Or was it complete? And is it irreparable, this rupture between the Lutheran Church and the Church of Rome? Before I read to you from a very recent document written by the Lutheran Church and Rome composed together, may I remind you why Martin was so passionately heated in his response to the condemnation of Pope Leo X and the Curie of Rome. That would be the bureaucracy of the Vatican. Why are you so hepped up? Because as an obedient son of the church, Martin, this monk and priest, has overdosed on what he thought were meritorious acts of devotion and piety that were assured to win for him the approbation and acceptance of a God who was obviously angry at me, a hopeless sinner. And had it not been for his vicar, Johann von Staupitz, Luther tells us he would literally have mortified himself to death. Prayer. Penance, confession, worship, prayer, penance, confession, worship, prayer, penance, confession, worship. Martin Staupitz exclaims to him, Martin, God is not angry at you. You are angry at God. It was one thin sliver of light when Staupitz said to him, Go to the cross, Martin. Go look at the cross. One thin sliver of light, but it shattered the dark night of the soul of this young man. And slowly, slowly comes the dawning of the gospel in his heart. To precipitate that dawning, by the way, this is brilliant on Stalpit's part. He, he turned to Luther, Luther and he said, Hey, listen, you need more work, you need more study. I'm sending you back to school. You're going to get a doctorate. He said, I don't need a doctorate. I'm happy with that. No, you're going back. And it's going to be a doctorate, by the way, in theology. Yes, it is. But I'm not. Yes, you are. I am your vicar. And when you're done, you come back. And Duke Frederick will have you be one of his first new theology teachers in this university just raised up. And it worked. Immersing intentionally Luther into Scriptures Eventually, Luther will lecture from the Psalms, he will lecture from Galatians, he will lecture from Romans as he begins to see the life-giving light of Christ, of Christ. Derek Wilson, his English biographer, describes Luther's breakthrough 
And he begins with Luther's words. I want you to catch it. Put it on the screen for you. Quoting Luther now. This first line is Luther. Luther wrote, Living, nay, rather dying and being damned make a theologian not understanding, reading, or speculation. In other words, you can't become a theologian just reading great books. You've got to struggle yourself. You have to fight the devil. Out of that being damned, you'll become a theologian one day. Now, Wilson commenting goes on. Luther's intellectual breakthroughs came from his own spiritual struggle, not from his wearisome working of the academic treadmill. It was out of his own deeply felt personal experience that Luther was able to speak to ordinary people rather than engage in esoteric debate with ivory-towered specialists. And when the gospel breaks through to Martin, oh my, does it break through? Get a load of this. James Kittleson, another biography, biographer, sets up uh, these words of Luther. So the opening words will be uh, James Kittleson on the screen for you. This focus on Christ. And by the way, that's what, that's what set Luther f- free. The focus on Christ. This focus on Christ could, could give even the most tormented soul absolute assurance. Where was the release from accusations of conscience or God's law? Now, Luther will answer that question. Here come Luther's words now. Luther writing, nowhere save from Christ and in Christ. For if some complaint should be registered against a heart that believes in Christ, if the devil comes to you and begins to taunt you, that's what Luther is saying, and the devil testifies against you with some evil deed that he reminds you of, then, now keep going, then Luther writes, the heart is to, is to turn itself away, turn away from the devil, turn to Christ, and you say to him, but Christ made me satisfaction. Christ is the righteous one, and this is my defense. Christ died for me. Christ made his righteousness mine and made my sin his own. And if Christ made me, if Christ made my sin his own, then I do not have it, and I am free. Hallelujah. That's the gospel (laughs) right there. Free indeed was Martin. It's no wonder the Protestant Reformation would be founded upon those five great solas, Latin for only or alone. Let me run them by you in case you've forgotten these five. Put them on the screen for you. They're also in the study guide that you'll be able to take home. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Solus fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Soli Deo gloria, the glory of God alone. Five of them. Luther and the reformers who preceded him and who followed him were absolutely sure that standing in direct opposition to these five great solas were the teachings of Rome herself. Which is why Luther's response to the papal bull and the subsequent bull of excommunication was intractable. I will not recant nor will I withdraw what Holy Scripture has shown me is the gospel truth of salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, through Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Oh, meticulous ignorance, you impious and insensate papist. Not exactly Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. But he won friends. Oh, my, did he win German friends by the tens of thousands. They were set free by the very gospel he began to preach and teach. Elie Froome, in his comprehensive four-volume magnum opus called The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers. I have all four volumes. If you could ever find them, get them fast. Elie Froome summarizes the twin message of the Protestant Reformation, 
twin messages. Here they are. Froom is on the screen. You have to fill this out, by the way, in your study guide, so pull your study guide out real quick now. Not taking a lot of time to break for study guides. Here we go. Froom's words on the screen. Luther's break with Rome was a spectacle equaling, if not surpassing in moral sublimity, any other scene unfolded in the Christian era. It was evident that nothing in this old world is more... I love this line. Nothing in this world is more powerful than a prophetic truth whose time has come. It has impelling force and power within it. Thus it was with the Reformation, which was really born out of a twofold discovery. Here they are. Jot them down. First, the rediscovery of Christ and His salvation. And second the discovery of the identity of Antichrist and his subversions, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, come on, guys. Martin Luther did not invent the word Antichrist. It's, God invented it. It's in the Bible. To prove that, let me show you. Go to the little First John right near the end of the Bible, First John chapter 2, please. Why don't you look this up? I'm going to share with you four texts that confirm Luther in his conclusion to take on the immensity of the institution of Rome. Here are the four texts. Simple. Okay, First John. First John chapter 2. I'm in the New International. Whatever you're looking it up on is fine by me. First John chapter 2, verse 18 and then verse 22. Verse 18, dear children. So you have a pastor here. He's an elderly man now. He's writing to his, to his parish, to his people. Dear children, this is the last hour. Do you understand? This is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Drop down to verse 22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Jot it down, will you please? The Antichrist, and by the way, that's the Greek word, Antichristos. Some people say that that means against Christ. No, 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 no. The word literally means instead of. The Antichrist takes Christ's place. The Antichrist, write it down, instead of Christ, is coming. That's John's point. And Luther identifies the papacy as the coming Antichrist power. No, he, t he throws in another line. We'll just do this on the screen. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul writing now. Luther says, there's a connection here. Watch this. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until... Till the rebellion, and the Greek word for rebellion there is apostasia, apostasy. That's what he's saying. And if you have an apostasy, it's within the community of faith, not outside it. And apostasy means inside. Until, do, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the apostasy occurs and the man of lawlessness or the man of sin is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. What kind of, a, what kind of an individual is this? He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, in the faith community. He sets himself up, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, we read it just a moment ago when Luther's trying to justify his burning of the papal canon. Uh, Luther's words, the canon law was included because it makes the pope a god on earth. There are four texts. So here comes number three now. He goes back to the Old Testament, the great prophetic book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Oh, you need to fill. Let's just go back a minute. You do need to fill out uh, that uh, line, the man, of, the, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin will assert, will assert himself to be God on earth. Now, here, here, here's uh, Daniel, chapter 7, verse 25. 
He shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Would you jot this down, please? The little horn power of Daniel 7, Luther believed, would speak against the Most High, persecute the saints, and change times and laws. Luther identified this little horn power with the papacy. One more line, Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Keep reading. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Jot this down, please. Luther identified the beast of Revelation 13, the woman riding the beast in Revelation 17, and Babylon in Revelation 18 with the papacy. The truth of history is, jot this down, not only Martin Luther... But subsequently, William Tyndale, John Calvin, John Knox, John Wesley, and a host of other lesser-known reformers saw in Rome the coming of the Antichrist as taught in Scripture. How did, how did Froome put it? The Reformation will have two, had two discoveries, twin discoveries. Discovery number one, Christ and His salvation. Discovery number two, the identity of Antichrist and His subversions. Hey, but listen, listen, listen. Come on, come on. Relax, relax. What a difference. If you're all worried about something, what a difference 500 years can make. I hold in my hands right here a document entitled, From Conflict to Communion, Lutheran Catherine Common Commemoration of the Reformation in 2017. In the introduction, I read. I'll put the words on the screen for you. This is paragraph one. In 2017, Lutheran and Catholic Christians will commemorate together, will commemorate together the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. Lutherans and Catholics today enjoy a growth in mutual understanding, cooperation, and respect. They have come to acknowledge that more unites than divides them. Above all, common faith in the triune God and the revelation in Jesus Christ, as well as recognition of the basic truths of the doctrine of justification. What a difference 500 years can make. Essentially, what's being said here is we are now going to celebrate together the greatest rupture Roman Catholicism has experienced in its recent 1,700-year history. In fact, last October 31, the beloved Pope Francis flew to Sweden to join with the president of the Lutheran World Federation, Bishop Munib Yunan, in a joint prayer service to mark the beginning of a year-long celebration of the Protestant Reformation. Together, we'll celebrate this. The document goes on. This would be paragraph 16. What happened in the past cannot be changed, but what is remembered of the past and how it is remembered can, with the passage of time, indeed change. How true. Remembrance makes the past present. It sure does. certainly does. While the past itself is unalterable, the presence of the past in the present is alterable. In view of 2017, the point is not to tell a different history, but to tell that history differently. And that's what they've done. To tell the history of Martin Luther and the Reformation differently. To tell it very differently. In other words, we can't change the story. We'll find a new way to retell it. You know, as I've read these pages, I've wondered to myself how Martin himself would respond to this new tete-a-tete 500 years later between the church he founded and the Church of Rome. Consider his last major book to be published. So Luther's last book, 
Derek Wilson, the biographer, again, he explains the book, put it on the screen. Luther's last major book was titled Against the Roman Papacy and Institution of the Devil, which he sent to the press in March 1545. It was written in the white heat of anger and indignation, and it surpassed in violent and vulgar language anything Luther had written before. Hit the pause button right there. I want to remind you something because it's so easy for us to forget. Luther is not writing to people. If he was writing to Catholic people, that's everybody. That's everybody in his church. That's everybody in the city. That's everybody in the next. It's everybody in the country. We're all Catholics. He's not writing, condemning, judging people. Luther instead has focused on an institution that he believes is, 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 the, is the bestower of what he has defined, the Scripture has defined, as heresy. And so with, with, a, with a white heat passion, he goes after the institution. It's not the people. They're his parishioners. He's their pastor. We forget that. Now, pick it up. Derek Wilson again. When some of his friends took him to task for, for this, man, Luther, do you have to use this kind of language? He admitted that his language was extreme, but he was unrepentant. What the Pope and his agents were doing was so dishonest, so aggressive, so contrary to the gospel that people had to be warned in the most sensational manner that he could devise. And now, 500 years later, they want to tell the, they want to tell the history differently. Shall we be surprised if Perhaps one day, I don't know, I suppose it could be as a sort of a final coup de grace for the Reformation. Maybe it would be the canonization of Martin Luther as a, a saint of the Church of Rome. But at what price this newfound unity? Oh, you're absolutely right. Jesus did pray. John 17, the, pr the last prayer recorded before the cross. Jesus did pray, Oh, Father that they might be one even as we are one. He prayed for that unity, absolutely. But notice what the unity is to be based on. John 17, 17, the words on the screen, sanctify them, O Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus declares the basis for unity, and it's the word of God. It's the word that provides the basis for, you, for unity. Sola Scriptura. Only the Word of God that defines and declares the truth of God can serve as the foundation for the unity of the church of God. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. That's how you do it. Any church, it would be that way. Any churches, it would be that way. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. So here's the question. You tell me. Does the Reformation no longer matter. Hmm? Has Rome changed? Turns out Rome hasn't changed at all. It's the Protestants who have changed, as you are now going to see. The Pew Research Center did two major surveys this summer. They surveyed the United States, Protestants in the United States. They went over to Western Europe and surveyed Protestants in Western Europe. I have the report of their survey. In fact, there's a website there on, in your study guide, and you can, you can track it as well. Here's the, here's the, here's the uh, pre preamble to, to the survey report. 
as Protestants prepare to mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, new Pew Research Center surveys show that in both Western Europe and the United States, the theological differences that split Western Christianity in the 1500s have diminished to a degree that might have shocked Christians in past centuries. Across Europe and the U.S., the prevailing view is that Protestants and Catholics today are more similar religiously than they are different. And while the Reformation led to more than a century of devastating wars and persecution in Europe, both Protestants and Catholics across that continent now overwhelmingly express willingness to accept each other as neighbors and even as family members. I'm not going to worry about the stats for Western Europe. You can go online and you can read those stats. Let me give you three of the statistics for the United States, all right? That's our homeland here. On the screen for you, fill them in, please. About half in this survey, about half of the U.S. Protestants, that would be 52%, say both good deeds and faith in God are needed to get into heaven, a historically Catholic position. I'm reading directly out of the document. The other half, 46%, say that faith alone is needed to attain salvation. So there's statistic number one. Here comes statistic number two. U.S. Protestants are also split on another issue that played a key role in the Reformation. 46% say the Bible provides all the religious guidance Christians need, a traditionally Protestant belief known as sola scriptura. But 52% say Christians should look for guidance from church teachings and traditions, as well as from the Bible, the position held by the Catholic Church. One more. Statistic three. Just 30% of all U.S. Protestants affirm both. Sola fide, salvation is by faith alone, and sola scriptura, the Bible alone is the source of our authority. Only 30% of U.S. Protestants. Question, has Rome changed? Answer, as it turns out, it's the Protestants who have changed. In fact, the prolific American Protestant writer, Ellen White, 120 years before Pew Research announces this discovery, 120 years before, made the same point and said, this is how it will be in your nation. In her apocalyptic classic, The Great Controversy, on the screen, fill it in. The Roman church now presents a fair front to the world, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. She has clothed herself in Christ-like garments, but she is unchanged. Every principle of the papacy that existed in past ages exists today. The doctrines devised in the darkest ages are still held. Let none deceive themselves. The papacy that the Protestants are now so ready to honor, and I might add so ready to unite with, is the same that ruled the world in the days of the Reformation when men of God stood up at the peril of their lives to expose her iniquity. There has been, yes, 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 there has been a change, but the change is not in the papacy. Catholicism indeed resembles much of the Protestantism that now exists because Protestantism has so greatly degenerated since the days of the Reformers, end quote. The Rome that Martin Luther challenged and stood up to is the same and unchanged Rome today that is suing for peace with every major faith community that's willing to dialogue. Oh, by the way, it's not just the church of Martin Luther. Two days ago, on Thursday, 50 leaders of the World Methodist Council were in the Vatican to meet with the much-beloved and friendly Pope Francis with the same appeal for unity. So now you have the church of Martin Luther. You have the church of John Wesley. You have the church of England. You have the church of John Knox. Gone the way of Rome. Returning to Mother Church, all in response 
to Rome's beckoning to pursue a unity no longer based on the Word of God, but rather the ambitions for unity in a confederation at any price. Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. But it is a price that the Protestants and not Rome will finally pay. And what price shall we pay? We who are the inheritors of this new Reformation, Luther's mighty Reformation. What do you mean, new Reformation, Do I? Oh, the same apocalyptic classic on the screen. The Reformation did not, great controversy, did not, as many suppose, end with Luther. It is to be continued to the close of this world's history. For every generation there will be a new, a new reforming. Which means there's a new reformation God sends to this civilization, a continued reclamation of truths buried in the ash heap of the church of the dark ages. On the screen again, great controversy. There was a present truth in the days of Luther, a truth at that time of special importance, but there is a present truth for the church today. A new reformation with reformers young and not so young, men, women, and children who are unafraid to stand up to the hegemony of a monolithic church with ambitions to rule Christendom once again. A new reformation to pick up the torch that has been fumbled and dropped by the descendants of the old reformation. A new reformation, a present truth for a final generation. One last line on the screen, great controversy. Those who, pre who present the truth for this time should not expect to be received with greater favor than were earlier reformers. The great controversy between truth and error, between Christ and Satan, is to increase in intensity to the close of this world's history." End quote. I say bravo for Martin. Uh, am I the only one clapping? Milan? No, no. I say bravo, bravo to Martin. The question is, is there anybody to step in to Martin's place one last time? That's the question. Is there anybody to step in to Martin's place one last time? There will be a generation. There will be a generation with a new reformation one last time. That's why we spent the month of September thinking about something called the daily baptism of the Holy Spirit. Daily. You know why? Because you, you, you can't have a courage like Luther's. Come on. And by the way, you say, it'll, ne it'll never come to me. I'll never stand up like Luther. Don't worry about standing up. It can happen in a boardroom, it can happen in a classroom. It can happen in an airport. It can happen playing golf. There will be a moment in which you can stand up just as he did. It isn't the courage of Martin Luther we need. It's the courage of Jesus. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It's the courage of Jesus. It's the Spirit of Jesus. Every day, every day, they say, oh, Jesus, just as you went to the Father morning by morning every day, I'm going to you, please, every day. Baptize me afresh. Fill me all over again, just as you did, Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill me. Reformation isn't over. 
greatest hour of the Reformation is still ahead. And God is calling for reformers, not based upon their theological training or their spiritual pedigree. He needs men, women, and children who are willing to stand up for Him whenever, wherever, and say whatever He needs said at that moment. And only, only the Holy Spirit can give you that. I'm not backing off of September's series. We need, we need what Jesus is offering. Come on, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And in the Greek it says, who ask Him day after day after day after day after day. How much more? Just ask me. Just ask me. Is there anybody left after Martin to take a stand one more time? I pray, oh God, maybe him, maybe her, me too, me too, please.